Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Gary. I am a grateful believer in Jesus Christ, also recovering from alcoholism and now just simply facing the challenges that life brings every day. So, you know, I, uh, we introduce ourselves at Celebrate Recovery like that. And um, the reason is I'm not in try- trying to impress you with my boldness, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, telling you who I am or what I'm about. But I need a reminder constantly as to who I am. I'm not identified by my issues, and it's really easy to convince yourself of that. I need to be identified by my faith, uh, by Jesus Christ. That's my identity. My issues being what they are are secondary. They're there, but that's not who I am. And I also believe with all my heart that every day I can be a little bit more the person that God intended me to be. And, um, and this is progress. It'll never be perfection. It's, it's progress. And I also know that it takes a lot of work uh, to take this journey, but it's all worthwhile. I, I know that, I know that um, we can move towards this new life because I have seen it firsthand with my own eyes uh, every Friday night at Celebrate Recovery. And that's why we call it Celebrate Recovery, because of God changing lives. I've seen marriages uh, that have come alive, including my own. I don't mean just being reunited. I've seen marriages that have come alive. I've seen depression that's turned from uh, ener- that's turned to uh, energy and hope. And I've seen anger disappear. I've seen people face new challenges and obstacles and hurdles by turning to Jesus instead of old destructive habits. I've seen guilt and shame vanish from people. And I watch people take off their masks for the very first time. Take off their masks and not pretend like everything is okay when really it isn't. I've watched real friendships grow. And I've seen people let go of the past so they could move forward. So anyway, what would prevent us from uh, taking this journey, uh, pursuing this new life? Maybe. Maybe we're simply afraid to change. Maybe it takes too much work. Or, you know, life may not be perfect, but at least it's predictable. I've said that to myself. And if I turn the wheel over to God, what am I going to do when I lose control? Maybe it's our past, whether they're successes or failures. Maybe it's our past that prevents us from taking this new journey. And what's in that suitcase that we carry around on our our back that keep us from this new life. So, um, you probably all want to know what's in my suitcase, and Carol said it should have been bigger, but uh, that's what I grabbed. Um, I don't want to disappoint you, but um, there's no alcohol in there today. Um, There's nothing X-rated in there today. Um, There's just a little note, and that little note says, um, simply says, avoid risk at all costs. And it's a note that I was given when I was a little kid. It's how I was raised. And and if I was was a parent that had grown up in depression like my parents did, I probably would have given my kids the same note, but that's what it was. If you're not sure about it, don't go there. If there's risk, don't do it. 
If you can't control it, it's probably not a good idea. And when I finally worked up the courage to do something that involved a big risk, I couldn't handle it. Things started to consume me that led to worry, fear, isolation, and resentment, and alcohol. And that's what I turned to instead of turning to my faith, instead of turning to Jesus. Most people think alcohol is the problem. Well, alcohol is just the result. It's not really the problem. It's, not, it's just the escape from the problem. Realizing that allowed me to start emptying my suitcase, emptying my baggage. Being willing to look in your suitcase is where the journey really begins. In the process of emptying it, and also keeping it from filling up again, is what Celebrate Recovery does to change lives and help people heal. In Hebrews 12.1, the author says, uh, As for us, we have this large crowd of witnesses around us, so let us rid ourselves of everything that gets in the way and of the sin which holds on to us so tightly, and let us run with determination the race that lies before us. So what we're going to do this morning is give you a little glimpse of what uh, Celebrate Recovery is all about and what we do on Fridays. We're going to hear a testimony from uh, Wendy King, Dave King is going to uh, do a lesson on denial, and then we have uh, communion that Terry Hickman is going to lead and our offering with Mike Carey, and then my wife Carol and I will close. So that's where we are, and um, my name is Wendy. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ, who is in recovery from alcoholism and drug addiction. Just over a year ago, my introduction was different. I used to start by saying, I'm Wendy, a grateful believer in Jesus who uses substances to cope. I had not completely put down my baggage and stepped out of denial. I spent the first 22 years of my life in Appleton, Wisconsin. This makes me a proud cheesehead and Packer fan. My two brothers and I were adopted as infants. We are not biological siblings. I am the middle child. After adopting the three of us, my mom did conceive and deliver a baby girl who died shortly after birth. I would describe my childhood as normal and happy. My parents were devout Lutherans, and we attended church faithfully. My dad was a police officer, and my mom was a homemaker and piano teacher. My young childhood included playing with neighborhood friends, family vacations, and gatherings with extended family. I was a fairly shy, compliant child. Around the time I was in junior high, our family structure changed dramatically. My younger brother began drinking, smoking, and using drugs at the age of 10. He spent my junior and senior high school years in and out of treatment centers. My older brother, who also struggled with drugs and alcohol, was brought to Hazelden, a well-known treatment center in Minnesota, his freshman year of college. With my brothers absent much of the time, we now functioned as a family of three. I felt like an only child. This is my first recollection of feeling invisible and learning to disappear. One way I did this was by overachieving. I was a straight-A student, excelled at music, and worked in order to save money for college. The first time I drank was my junior year of high school. My friends and I thought it would be cool to do something outside our good girl image. I can count on one hand how many times I drank during the remainder of high school. I graduated with scholarships and performance awards that allowed me to go to the small liberal arts college I had wanted to attend, Lawrence University in Appleton. 
I graduated from college in June of 1991 and was married two months later. I had met my first husband my freshman year of college. Our marriage was pretty uneventful. We didn't argue at all, which I now see as a negative thing. Usually my ex-husband made a decision and I just went along with it. I was invisible in a different way, without a voice of my own. We moved from Wisconsin to Champaign in order for him to attend law school. About this time, we also began trying to start a family. Our life together revolved around his friends and his family. We spent very little time alone. By the time of our fifth wedding anniversary, I still was not pregnant. We had begun the process of infertility treatment. After returning from an anniversary trip, I was ready to begin the phase of treatment that required daily injections. Before I could do that, it was routine to draw blood to make sure I wasn't pregnant. I was shocked and thrilled to discover I was pregnant. Finally, I had reached the place in life I had been waiting for. I was a wife and would soon be a mother. About one month after finding out I was expecting, I began realizing something wasn't right with my husband. He didn't seem excited that I was pregnant. I thought maybe he was being cautious in case something happened with the pregnancy. When I finally asked him if something was wrong, I'll never forget what he said. His exact words were, I like you, I love you, I just don't think it's enough. I was completely blindsided. About one month later, I discovered there was another woman involved. As I'll explain later, much like my perceptions of an alcoholic, I also had some preconceived perceptions of divorced single mothers. At age 27, I was dealing with my marriage ending, becoming a single mom, and needing to find a new support system. Like I said earlier, my friends and family were his. I had also decided to go back to school to become an RN. My two bachelor degrees wouldn't provide a stable job with benefits that could support me and my baby. We had to sell our house, and I moved into an apartment. You would think this would lead me to drink, but it didn't. My OB doctor even prescribed something to help me sleep during my pregnancy. I never filled the prescription. I'd worked too hard to become pregnant to put the baby at risk. God used my divorce and my time of being a single mom to empower me and to teach me to have a voice. I truly feel it was during that time that I first experienced a relationship with God. I finished nursing school, moved into my own space, and began my career as an RN. I had made my own family of friends through church and work. I managed my finances and was responsible for my household. This was truly a time of healing and growth. Through God's grace, I began to depend on him. I also believed that someday I would be married again. I began praying that God would bring me a Christian man to be my second husband. I met Dave in January of 2001, and we were married on November 17th of that same year. God answered my prayer for a Christian husband. I had fallen in love with someone who knew the Lord and had a passion for his children. He understood the pain of divorce and was willing to be vulnerable emotionally. He also had a stable career, was incredibly handsome, and made me laugh. We knew we wanted to be married, and we were committed to doing it God's way by not living together. I was completely unprepared for this season in my life. I didn't slow down long enough to process or to ask for God's guidance for the challenges of blending a family. It was overwhelming going from my life as a single mom of one to a family of five. We hadn't discussed the step-parent role, how to handle day-to-day living, or things like whether we would have white lights or colored lights on our Christmas tree. 
To make matters worse, Dave and I spent our first year of wedded bliss sleeping in one corner of our living room as we waited for an addition to our house to be complete. There is also the dynamic of navigating work schedules. I was working 12-hour night shifts, school schedules, and the schedules of the children's time with their other parent. All three children spent equal time between mom and dad's houses. Not only were our physical surroundings chaotic, Dave and I were developing an unhealthy dance or pattern of chaotic behavior that eventually made our lives unmanageable. Over the first 10 years of marriage, I slowly disappeared emotionally and spiritually. I stopped thinking that my opinions mattered, so I no longer offered them. Not only that, I built a wall around my heart. I no longer felt safe sharing my thoughts and feelings. I started believing I was a victim. If only Dave would be softer, less judgmental, and more supportive, that would make everything better. People close to me would say Dave was taking away my strength and power. The truth is, I was willingly giving it away. I began drinking more often. One glass of wine became two or three. I didn't want anyone knowing how much I was drinking, so I would hide the amount. Around this time, I also developed issues that led to my having a hysterectomy. I was 39, and I had never had surgery. I had also never been exposed to Vicodin. It is normal to need pain medicine, so I wasn't worried about taking it. What wasn't normal was how it affected me. Unlike most people, it didn't make me feel cloudy or drugged. I discovered it actually made me feel more alert and focused. Taking it after a 12-hour shift allowed me to keep going to get things done at home. At this time, my career as an RN had led me to the surgery center. This is significant because not only had I become well-educated about different pain medication, but I was surrounded by it daily. I instructed patients on the importance of avoiding alcohol while taking pain medication. I stressed the need to follow dosing directions carefully and how to decrease the amount of pain medicine as they were healing. My first years at the surgery center, I could be found poring over charts to determine why we were one pill short on our drug count. This is why I knew on March 29, 2011, as I sat in my director's office being accused of taking Vicodin from our med cart, that I had become powerless over pain medication. Only because of God's grace can I say I was caught early on in my progression into addiction. Over two years later, I can say this. At the time, however, I was deep in denial. After all, only the homeless person with a brown bag was an alcoholic. Only the person who took bottles of pills bought illegally was an addict. I only took two Vicodin a few times to help me cope with life. After being terminated from my position as an RN, I began to drink in secret. My shame over the loss of my job had left me feeling devastated and hopeless. I had put immense financial strain on my family. I had always prayed to be a stay-at-home mom, but this wasn't exactly what I had in mind. I found myself drinking almost daily to cover the shame I felt and to get through the role of mom and wife. In December of 2011, I came home from errands to find my husband and stepson in my kitchen. On the table were several empty wine bottles they had found around the house and in our garbage. I still couldn't admit I had a serious problem. This occurred a couple more times between December and June of 2012. Then something happened that changed my life. My daughter was house-sitting for a friend, and I went along to help. I found some Vicodin and took two. I panicked when I realized what I had done. In order for my RN license to stay intact, I am required for three years to be drug tested monthly. 
I took the pills with only two days left in the month of May. How was I going to pass my test? I spent the next 48 hours drowning myself drinking water. I went at the last possible moment and had the test done. Then I waited. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday felt like an eternity. I couldn't eat, sleep, or function. I couldn't let anyone find out. Sunday morning, I entered church feeling physically sick. All I could do was pray. Something happened that morning. I looked around the room and saw some of my CR family. A feeling of peace washed over me. God had provided the tools and resources for me to admit and to receive help. That day, I called Gary and told him I couldn't stop drinking. More than 18 months after being fired for taking pills from work, I was ready to surrender. I attended 88 meetings in 90 days and began working a daily recovery program. I got honest. Today, I continue to attend three to four meetings per week, and Dave and I attend meetings together weekly. On June 3rd, I celebrated one year of sobriety. I no longer attend CR just to support my husband. I don't see CR as a means to fix Dave or our marriage. I've literally crossed over the hall from the Al-Anon side to the AA side. CR and AA provide an opportunity for me to stay out of denial and to free me from the baggage I had refused to leave in the baggage check during the journeys of my life. Sometimes I try to reclaim my old baggage, to take it back from God. This was true of doing my testimony. I wanted to wait until I could stand up here and tell you I had a full-time job as an RN and we were financially secure. A friend from CR who gave her testimony reminded me through her courage that we are to look for God's timing, not our own. Dave and I still face the same daily struggles as we did before recovery. It is our reactions to these struggles that have changed. I am truly a grateful believer today in Jesus, and I can say with complete honesty that my life is much richer because I surrender daily to God's will for me. Thank you for letting me share. Well, I need to um, just clear up a couple things because it's happened. We, we did a dress rehearsal of this on Friday. Obviously, we've done that first service. And every time somebody has come up to me and said, who was she talking about when they said handsome, okay? <laughs> and that was 12 years ago, okay? Things change, all right? But just so you know. Change is possible. Amen. I'm Dave, and I'm a grateful believer in Jesus who struggles with sexual addiction and anger. I have lived in denial. I've lived with denial. I've been affected by my family's denial. And I have seen how my denial affected other people, especially those I love. And now I'm free. Today, one day at a time, I am discovering that Jesus' love and healing power give me new hope, freedom, and peace every day. I'm no longer controlled by the baggage of others, and I'm letting go of mine so that I can enjoy the new and abundant life that Jesus promises. Before I begin our lesson on denial, I think it's important for me to make sure that 
you all know that I'm talking about all of us. Because Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. And some of us have experienced trouble, the kind of trouble that rocks us to our core. So it's not just those people, but all of us who will encounter a circumstance in our lives that grips us and exposes our vulnerabilities, our hurts, habits, and hang-ups. In her book, Sober Mercies, How Love Caught Up with a Christian Drunk, Heather Kopp describes this exact phenomenon as she recounts her personal journey of confronting her baggage and brokenness and shares that we all have a need for community of forgiveness and grace. Her memoir makes it abundantly clear that good, God-fearing people struggle mightily, that we wear masks and we are able to hide. So if you came today, I just want to say, you're all newcomers. Welcome. You just, you're attending your first you know, recovery meeting. <laughs> How do you like that? We don't have enough newcomer coins to give all of you, but come on Friday. If you've come to CR, you know that we like acrostics. So how, how is it that we come about hiding? And, and I have an acrostic for hide. The H is our, our history, our family history, our personal history. Perhaps it's what we've done, what we've done to other people, what other people have done to us. It's our intellect, it's our insights, our clever strategies that we use. It's our determination, our our willpower, the self-reliance that we have that we use then to escape or externalize what's really going on. We blame others. That's how we hide. And Gerald May in his book, Addiction and Grace, says, no matter how religious we may may think we are, our hurts, habits, and hang-ups are always capable of usurping our concern for God and they can enslave our will and desire. We may not have intentionally chosen this path. Indeed, most of us haven't. But trouble happens, and and here we are. How could our hiding go undetected? And the answer is found in denial. The self-protecting behaviors that prevent us from facing the truth, the mind tricks that we use that have a singular purpose to keep the hurt, habit, or hang-up going. Denial has six negative effects, and you'll see them on the screen. And if you were able to pick up a handout on your way in, you'll see the scriptures on one side that go along with these um, six effects, and then the acrostic itself. The D is that it disables our feelings. We stuff our feelings. We're cut off from our feelings. We do things to numb. And oftentimes what this does is magnify or exaggerate other feelings that aren't so healthy, particularly feelings of shame, feelings of fear and hopelessness. The E is energy lost. Being in denial requires enormous amounts of energy. 
energy that could be used in solving problems instead is diverted into problem hiding, problem denying, and problem avoiding. Our preoccupation with our issue consumes us. We are drained. We drain other people. The end is negates growth. Being in denial just doesn't maintain our hurt habit or hang up. It actually makes it worse and it affects other people. So we're not just stuck. We actually continue to spiral downward over time. Our denial isolates us from God. And as May continues in his book, he says, Our hands are too full to receive the good things God is always trying to give us. If our hands are full, they are full of the things that control us, our hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And not only our hands, but also our hearts, our minds, and our attention. They're all clogged. The spaces within us, spaces where grace might flow, and space where God wants to dwell. You see, you can't live a lie and expect to feel close to God, especially when we've made something else a God in our lives. The A is for alienates our relationships. Besides it taking up a lot of energy, our hurt habit or hang up, trying to protect it, protect our secrets, it's costly. We can't be known by others and Sometimes at this point, we may not even really know ourselves. We're defined you know, by our hurt habit or hang-up. And as Gary said earlier, that's why it's so powerful to be able to acknowledge that um, Jesus is our identity. So it alienates us from our relationships partly because our hurt habit or hang-up is never completely an individual thing. We may rationalize and want to say, I'm not really affecting other people, only really doing this to myself. It's just not true. So let me say this to families. If you try to help someone or support them in any way, it has to be in a way that will end their addiction. If you don't, you'll end up supporting the addiction instead. You'll be a contributor or part of the problem. So when you put these all together, it's not surprising that the L is lengthening our pain. That's, that's what denial does. It lengthens our pain. John Baker says in his book, Life Healing, Life's Healing Choices, that God uses pain to let us know that something is seriously wrong and needs our attention. He whispers to us in our difficult moments, and he shouts to us in our pain. Is he shouting to you today? You can learn enough to want to, or you can hurt enough where you have to. Sooner or later, our hurts, habits, or hang-ups will prove to us that we are not God. And May says, because of our hurts, habits, and hang-ups, we simply cannot, on our own, keep the great commandments. Most of us have tried again and again and have failed. 
Some of us have even recognized that these commandments are really our heart's deepest desires. We do want to please God. We've tried to dedicate our lives to them, but still we fail. We fail. I think our failure is necessary, for it's in failure and helplessness that we can honestly and completely turn to grace. Grace is our only hope for dealing with our hurts, habits, and hang-ups, the only power that can vanquish their destructiveness. So, if you are thinking about your situation and wondering, how is it that I ended here and what do I do? Perhaps you can ask yourself some of these questions. Um, like, how have you been numb? What feelings do you avoid? How much energy and time have you spent worrying and being preoccupied with whatever your particular issue might be? Or maybe somebody else's issue. How long have you wanted to change and what progress have you really made? Does your relationship with God revolve around your issue or do you avoid God because of your issue? Do you wear a mask for other people? Do you avoid letting them see who you really are? And have your methods to deal with your pain been effective? We can only be free to the degree to which we accept personal responsibility. And stepping out of denial is the first place, the first step where we need to begin. So sometimes when we're giving our Celebrate Recovery lessons, we uh, like to have an illustration, some way to apply what we're learning. And uh, so I have one uh, for us. And I need a volunteer, you know, to help me with this. Um, and I've been attending here since 1985. I said this first service, so I know a lot of you. So if you're not going to volunteer, I'm going to call you out. That's, so I need, I need a volunteer to help me with a little exercise. Look at this. Come on up here, Dave. You can always tell who has the least amount of tolerance for discomfort in a group. They just run. No. Um, this is a beach ball, right? Um, you're going you're gonna to blow it up, my man. Just huff and puff. We've got nurses here in case something happens to you, all right? And while he's doing it, I'm just going to talk through this a little bit. See, I had to learn you got to depress that little valve in there to blow, blow it up. This beach ball are your issues, right? Colorful. You can see them. Everybody sees them. Takes time to develop them. Takes a lot of energy to inflate them, where they occupy your, your life, your, your life space, if you will. <laughs> For some people, it takes longer than others, okay? <laughs> You may not be able to see your issues, just like me. I'm, I'm actually a little colorblind. I mean, truthfully, I am. My wife told me I was, and I would not believe her. I actually had to go at work one day and ask them, what color pants are these? And then they confirmed what my wife had been telling me all along. I mean, that's kind of how denial works. All right, you want to just plug that up there? Don't explode it there. there. All right. <laughs> Colorful. 
Most everybody's aware of him, maybe except us. Now what Dave's going to do, uh-oh, he's got He's going to plug it up here. Now what I'm going to ask him to do is stick it and hold it underwater. Go ahead. All the way under. Keep holding it. Now the guy that came and did this first service afterwards said, you know, I think I learned the most from this lesson. Because he knows how hard it is to keep our issues underneath the service so nobody can see them. This isn't easy. It takes a lot of energy. And just so you know, we don't just have one issue. Oh, no, it won't fit in there, so you're lucky, man. It's not going to fit, all right? All right, so you can take that out. Now, we had a little difficulty first service. Now, if you want, can you pull that plug out? I couldn't do it. Okay, go ahead and dry your hand. See, I came with the towel. I'm ready. So much trouble as I had putting it in there, it ought to come right out. Yeah. All right. Go ahead, take it out. Now just squeeze that air out. Go ahead. This is what Celebrate Recovery helps us do. Helps us identify our issues. Helps us know how our denial works. And with help, we can actually deflate this even faster. See, doing it by yourself takes a lot of time. God never intended for you to do it by yourself. So I'm going to let him keep doing that. Here's the key. Don't fill it back up once it's empty. Don't. You're working on it. (laughs) You know, it took a lot of time to inflate it, right? It takes time for us to heal and recover. Uh, The first guy, Steve, he just wanted to take a knife and, you know, just puncture it. Works faster, but guess what? Creates damage. And that's part of what the steps and the principles are about to promote healing. You can just put that down there. I think you all got the lesson, I think so. All right. Thanks a lot. I love these little clocks up here. It says I have four minutes left. I want to close with the familiar passage that you all, I think, should know. It's it's on uh, page 895 in your Bibles, if you want one in front, uh, but it's John 9. And I'm not going to read the whole passage, but I just want to highlight a few things of it, really from a recovery perspective, point of view. You recall in this passage that Jesus and the disciples are walking along, and as they pass by, they see a man who's blind, a man born blind from birth. And this is the question that they asked him. They said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, I just want to inject a few comments and we'll skip on. Because really what they're asking, it's the H in hiding. Surely it's because of his choices, right? It's consequences of his choices. Surely it's, it's because of his family history, things that have happened to him. Surely that's, that's why. And we know how the story goes. He, Jesus puts mud on his eyes, right? And spits in the mud, and makes, and he goes and washes, and he can see his sight. He, he receives his sight. He, his eyes are opened, and nobody will believe how it really happened. The leaders bring him in. They interrogate him and question him. 
and accuse him of all sorts of things. They're relying on their intellect. You know, and that may be true for some of you who want to enter into recovery. People won't believe that you've changed. They won't believe the reason for your change. So they bring his parents in. And the parents were afraid, right, because they're going to get tossed out of the synagogue. They, they, don't, they don't want to say. Sometimes our families, those that are closest to us, may not understand what we are experiencing. It's not a good time. There's too much to lose. And they can't support the work and effort that it takes sometimes. So they bring him in a second time. And then they ask him again, what did he do to you? And that's the question, isn't it? What has he done to you? Maybe the real question, a better question might be, what are you willing to allow him to do? in your life. Our inadequacies are a doorway through which the power of grace can enter our lives. And our imperfections are used to radiate His beauty. As Jesus said to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you For my power is made perfect in weakness. So when we're confronted with this trouble that Jesus talks about will happen, and we wonder why, we can look at this passage and see the answer. And that answer is right after the disciples asked him the question, who sinned? You know, this man or his parents. And what was the answer? that the works of God might be displayed in him. That the works of God could be displayed in my wife. That the works of God could be displayed in me. In all of us. And there is no shame. No shame in that. I was blind. But now I see. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, you're just so amazing that as we experience our brokenness, we know that you are alongside of us. You see how broken we are and want to make us whole. You see that we're alone and you want to be with us. And that you give us a way through your son that we can experience your love, your loving kindness through others. Thank you so much through your son. Amen.
Good morning, everyone. My name is uh, Terry. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus who struggles with alcoholism and depression. We all have hurts, habits, and hang-ups in our lives, and they haunt us, or they have haunted us in our past. You may not call it baggage. You may call it the problem or the issue or the thing we don't talk about in public. Or in my case, it's my personal demons, the voices that rattle around in my head and tell me I'm not good enough. I did this an hour ago, so I thought I could make it through without crying. They're not tears of sadness, okay? They're, they're tears of gratitude and thanksgiving for what Jesus has done in my life. He shows me that I do have value. What it's called is not as important as admitting it exists, and it can be a heavy burden to bear. But we in CR want you to know that you don't have to go through your trials alone, whatever they are and whatever you call them. Matthew 11, Jesus tells us, Come to me, all who are tired and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We in CR, we don't claim to be superheroes, We just tried to be the hands and feet of the one who gave it all. In Celebrate Recovery, we claim Jesus Christ as our one and only higher power, and we make no bones about it, because he is the one who died for us, even while we were still sinners. You should have all had a baggage tag on your seat when you came in. If you don't, steal one from the seat next to you or something. Um, it's not stealing. That's okay. <laughs> what, whatever you're dealing with, whatever's haunting you, whatever your issue is, you know, take that first step. Write it down, okay? Nobody's going to see it. It's just you and God, okay? And that's your first step. It's admitting that you, you are dealing with something and you're giving it over to God. One of the thoughts that helps me personally to get through hard days is the thought that someday these struggles will all be over and we're going home. In John 14, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you And I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus never told us this life would be easy. Just that he would never leave us or forsake us. He also told us to remember him when we break bread together. So that's what we're about to do here. We're going to remember his sacrifice. Remember that the juice is the blood and the bread represents his body. As you remember the price that Jesus paid for us, give thanks for his grace and mercy and the hope that he gives us every day. Let's pray. Father God, you're an awesome God, and and 
we are so grateful that we can be called children of God. We thank you for your sacrifice, Father. We thank you for giving up your son to die for us. And Jesus, we thank you so much for forgiving of yourself and accepting the cross as our payment so that we don't have to. And we know that someday we'll be with you again in heaven. And it's in your name we pray these things, Jesus. Amen. Hi, everybody. I'm Carol. I'm a grateful believer in Christ and Gary's wife for almost 40, well, over 42 years. For many years, I played the victim in a role in our home, blaming Gary and his issues for almost everything bad that had ever happened in my life. You see, concentrating on his stuff let me ignore my own, releasing me from taking responsibility for my own behavior. Resentments built to a boiling point, and almost six years ago, I told him I was done, ready to walk away from our 37-year marriage. But God had a different plan for me and for us. He led us to celebrate recovery where we could learn to let go of the baggage that was keeping us from being all that God intended us to be as individuals and as a couple. At Celebrate Recovery, Gary and I have found a safe place to work side by side on our own stuff. We've learned that the only person we can really change is ourselves. We've learned how to quiet ourselves and ask God for the strength to change what we need to change about ourselves. We've learned how to let go of the need to change each other and to learn to encourage each other to be all that God has uniquely made us to be. So I hope after hearing from all of us today, you have a better picture of what we do here on Friday night. If you feel God nudging you a bit today, maybe you should just make a commitment and join us on Friday nights. We're really a pretty friendly group of people. Um, maybe you're out there today wishing there was a safe place for you to share your issues, some place where you wouldn't be judged for some of the past choices you've made. Maybe you're tired of carrying around your baggage that you've carried since you were a kid. Or like me, maybe you're just tired of being a victim. Or maybe, as you sit there today, you realize that God has uniquely gifted you to serve at CR on Friday nights, leading God's people to a life of freedom from life's baggage. We believe in the work that God is doing at Celebrate Recovery. And we'd love for you to uh, join us as we do God's work here on Friday nights. One thing we do every Friday is close our meeting by uh, all standing and saying the prayer for serenity. So that's what we're going to do this morning. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking, as Jesus did, the sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Have a great week. Thanks for joining us.